Amen. Well, as Neil mentioned, today the passage that we find ourselves in Numbers becomes in a strange way one of the keys to unlock the message that the entire Bible is about. So if you remember, as we've been on our journey through Numbers, we started in the wilderness of Sinai, and we've been for some time in the wilderness of Paran, this wilderness of testing where God continues to give them another lap to help them learn the lessons that he needs them to learn. So like a good coach, he pulls out the whistle. One more lap around the wilderness. All right, I promise I won't do that again. That was in case you weren't awake yet. Because Chad has gotten to do this like several times. I didn't get to do it yet. So I bought myself a whistle and that was my turn. But I'll, I'll put it over there. We'll leave it alone now. But that's exactly what's happening. Because now today in this chapter, they're going to find themselves in exactly the same place that they were all the way back in chapter 14 when things first went wrong, when they found that they were now going to wander the wilderness until an entire generation had died out. They're back at the end, in a way, of that lap. So jump in to Numbers chapter 21 with me. We'll pick up right in verse 1. The king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Okay, so if you remember last week, they wanted to cut right through Edom because they could like see the promised land from here. But because Edom came out to fight and God had not told them that they could have that land, they end up having to go around. Now they find themselves facing this Canaanite king instead. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. So Hormah is the same place that they were at back in chapter 14. So there's a couple things going on here that, that we just want to make some sense of. First of all is that when they were here in chapter 14, God asked them to spy out the land, and he told them he was taking them into the promised land. But they found giants in the land. They said, we can't do this. The spies got the people to rebel. And so then God says, then you're going to die in the wilderness. Well, then they say, no, God, no, God, we'll go in, we'll go in. <laughs> and Moses says, don't do it. God is not with you now. And if you try to go win those battles on your own, you'll get crushed. They go anyway, and they get crushed. They get destroyed at this place called Horma, a word which means destruction. So now, 38 years later, they come back to this same place. But you notice the difference. This time it says, when that enemy came out against them, Israel made a vow to the Lord. They know what happened here before. They know the failure that happened here before. And they don't want to take on this battle unless God is with them. Now as we go through the rest of the book of Numbers, we'll dive a little bit deeper onto what and why they are commanded to destroy places like this in Canaan. But one of the things just kind of underneath the surface to help you understand this is that if you go back through Old Testament history, God actually told Abraham that he was going to bring the Israelites into this promised land, but that they were going to go to Egypt for 400 years first because the wickedness of Canaan had not yet reached its full measure. So part of what we have to understand that's going on in this moment is that God has held off in his patience and his mercy from any destruction in Canaan as long as, in a sense, as long as there was still a chance that somebody might turn. So we can trust him that as Israel moves in, 
God is actually bringing judgment on Canaan through Israel. And even there, you see stories of people among the Canaanites who turn and follow God, people like Rahab along the way. But that's what this moment is. It's a victory where they have failed before. And so the encouragement for us, I think for us today, ask God for victory in the present where you have failed in the past. Now that can be kind of encouraging and kind of discouraging because it means I have to admit I have failed. I don't know about you, that's really hard for me. And so I often will try to explain things away as like, well, it's not that big of a deal, or hey, we all make mistakes, or well, that's just my personality, right? And it keeps us from actually admitting, no, I need help. I need to fix this, right? I need help to fix this. A few years ago, a friend of mine was talking to uh, me and a few other guys. We were sitting in, um, it's basically a leadership group. But as we were talking, you know, he kept bringing up how he just felt this incredible weight of guilt on his life. And he knows that God has put him here to serve, but he feels like he can't serve because he's so guilty. And so we're trying to unpack this with him like, well, dude, like, is there something going on? Like, is there, is there some disobedience, some sin, some temptation? Like, is there something that you're giving into that you need to talk about that we need to, you know, we need repentance and confession and can heal from that and, and just embrace forgiveness? No, no, it's just... And he went on to describe how in his life, years earlier, he'd had a major struggle with pornography. And that began before he was a Christ follower. And when he became a Christ follower in his adult years, it continued. Like he couldn't, he just couldn't seem to shake it. Well, so as we're listening to this story, you could feel like the condemnation that was just weighing him down. But as he continued to speak, he said, but God set me free from that. You know, I haven't given in to that for years. God has healed me from that. I, I know how to resist that temptation, and I don't go there anymore. It's like, okay. So we're talking to him about Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're talking about 1 John, that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Like, God has made these promises. you got to hold on to them. So that was really just the first part of the story, because a couple weeks later, when we met again, it, it was like he was a different person. He was talking about how excited he was and how joyful he was and how free he is to serve because what had happened in the meantime was that God had set him free not just from the power of that sin in his life. Like he'd been free from that. He'd, he'd removed it. But there was this place that he drove past on the way to work every day, which apparently it was that exit off of that road that took him to the place where he bought most of his pornography. So every time he drove by here, he felt guilty all over again being reminded of that failure. He said what had changed for him is that he, even though he'd been free from the power of that sin for years, he felt like God had freed him from the guilt of it. And that now when he drives past that place, instead of feeling condemned, he remembers it as a place that God forgave him, as a place that God redeemed him from, and a place that God healed him because he literally doesn't go there anymore. So he can see that now as a victory even though it was a failure. It becomes a source of joy. And we honestly see that throughout the Bible. One of my favorite examples is David. When David picks the place to build the temple, it's the place where there was a plague killing people because of David's disobedience. But the place where the plague stops, he chooses that as the place to build the temple that Solomon will build later. 
And I'm thinking, I don't ever want to think about that place again. <laughs> like, let's put the, 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 the temple somewhere beautiful and like pick somewhere else. But he says, no, this is the place of forgiveness. That's what God's message is about. That's my encouragement for you. Just like Israel, even if you feel like you've been wandering for some time, when you come back to that place, that can be a place of victory. But what do you do when you feel like you hit that mountaintop victory and life is good and you're dancing on the mountaintop and you're not paying attention and you just fall right off a cliff? (laughs) Because that happens to Israel too. Check out the next verse. Like just when you're ready for like, yes, it's time for success. Let's go on in. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Guys, does that sound familiar? Like that is almost word for word what the generation before them said. Why have you brought us to die in the wilderness? And we've seen them time and time again speak against Moses and speak against Israel. Speak against Aaron, but check this out. They speak against God and against Moses. Like God has to own, this is rebellion. This complaining once again has become rebellion. So here's what's kind of crazy about this to me. You see that word food and that word bread? In the Hebrew, they're actually the same word. Lechem. So we hear that word all the time. You may not know it, but it's Bethlehem. means house of bread. Lehem is bread. So Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the house of bread. Okay, so what this verse actually says is, for there is no bread and we don't like this bread. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> so there, there is bread? You just don't want to eat this bread? Like that is like every single time my kids stand in front of an open pantry door that is stocked to the ceiling because I just got home from the grocery store and say, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> Children, please. <laughs> there's something to eat. You just don't like it. Right? So here's what's happening to them. They're starting to tell lies to themselves. They start to rehearse their negativity, and it changes the way they see God and the future he has in store for them. So my encouragement for us, don't let discouragement distort the truth for the future. Don't let discouragement distort the truth for the future. Because when we do that, it keeps us from moving forward. It keeps us from what God would have us to experience. And I think this happens in a lot of ways in our spiritual lives. We let fear in, we let anxiety in, we let guilt in, whatever it is, and we start to repeat to ourselves that I'm not capable, I can't do it, what if I get it wrong? Why'd you put me in this situation anyway? But, But you realize it's not true. They think they're going to die in the wilderness. Now guys, we've been going through numbers. Is that why God brought them to the wilderness? He made promises to them about a land flowing of milk and honey. The wilderness is just in the way. They're going through the wilderness, right? It's not true, but they've repeated it to the point that it feels true. Like, can we reject the discouragement that feels true? Can we realize that's not God's truth so that we don't repaint the future that he might have in store for us? 
You know, kind of, a, kind of a funny, maybe embarrassing way I experienced this in my own life was when I was in high school, I had a buddy named Alex. So Alex was like an Eagle Scout, but if there were like six levels beyond that, he'd be that too. So I remember one, one summer day where Alex is making a better use of his time. I'm watching cartoons or something in the afternoon, you know, and, and the phone rings. And, and this is the phone that has that big curly thing attached to the wall still. So I'm in the basement like, hey, what's up? So Alex calls and says, he built a sailboat. Whoa, dude. I was watching like the Disney afternoon, so good for you. <laughs> so he built a sailboat and he and his dad were inviting me to come and sail with them. So I meet them out at the pond and I've never done this before, but this is like you actually sit in the boat and uh, his dad, Mr. Monroe, took me out and he sat in the bow and I sat in the stern. So I've got the rudder and then you've got the sail and it's like depending which way you turn, you know, the wind catches that thing and the sail will swing around so that you can keep the boat going. So the first time across the pond, Mr. Monroe did it and I'm just watching and trying to learn and he explained everything to me very carefully. Um, and I tried to pay attention, but I did not understand. And I did not ask questions. <laughs> and what reminded me of this was because was uh, Chad was telling a nice sailing story a couple of weeks ago. I, saw, I thought, I wish I had a nice sailing story. My sailing story stinks. <laughs> because what happened was we get to the other side of the pond and Mr. Monroe says, okay, now you try. So we switch places, all right? So I'm in the back of the boat. I get to, to steer the thing now. And as we're heading back, he says, why don't you turn this way? So whatever I did was not the right thing because you're supposed to turn so that the sail swings outside the boat and then it will kind of keep you going the other direction. I turned completely the wrong direction, swung the sail across the bow, and if he did not have like lightning fast reflexes, would have cracked him upside the head with the mast. So he ducked, he's okay, but I, I am sure that I went ghost white and I'm like just get me back to the other side. So we just went a straight line to the other side. I got out of the boat. I'm like, I am a land lover for the rest of the day. <laughs> so here's why I tell you that story. Like I messed up, right? I failed. I wasn't listening well. And if you want to put like spiritual terms on it, I disobeyed <laughs> Mr. Monroe. I did not do what he asked me to do for multiple reasons. So here's what I remember about that day though. Multiple times the rest of that afternoon, Mr. Monroe said, you ready to try again? No. Come on. Let's try again. No. You see, in my mind, I have now believed, what if I mess up again? What if I hurt him this time? What if I get it wrong? That was embarrassing. I'm going to screw it up. I failed. I don't belong in the boat. And so it's interesting to me to remember that he's the one I could have killed. <laughs> and he's the one saying, hey, we all make mistakes. Nobody's a perfect sailor their first time in the boat. Let's try it again. Let's keep learning. So I never got back in the boat that day. And I can picture at least two more times on that phone with that long cord attached to the wall, standing in the basement that Alex called me that summer. And I'm like, Mom, just tell him I'm not here. He, Alex gets on the phone and says, hey, you want to go sailing? No, Alex. And, and I came up with some reason. I never went sailing again. So I tell you that because I think so many times God has something in store for us. And it's easy for us to say, tell my friend about Jesus, but what if I say something wrong? Where God says, hey, live this out. Let them see who I am to you. Let them see the blessings that I give. Let them see the comfort that I bring. And I say, you sure do, God, but what if I mess it up? 
No, Alex. Right? Or we think, but God, I screwed it up last time. God says, hey, I want you to move forward in faith in this area. Hey, I want you to repent of that thing. Confess that thing. Get rid of that sin. It's holding you back. And you say, but I tried to do that before, God, and I fell into it again, and I'm a failure, and I give up. And No, Alex. And we don't even mean it. But we end up rebelling against him. Refusing to move forward. And sometimes that ends up like it did for Israel, where it just becomes straight rebellion. That they spoke out against God. So in verse 6, it says that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many of Israel, many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So you see what's happening here? You see the change that just happened. All right, so this phrase, fiery serpents, the Hebrew word behind fiery is a little bit tricky, but it means something like burning. So they think relative to serpents in the wilderness, one of the main thoughts is that this is probably venomous snakes. That when you get bit, and this would explain why they're dying, the burning sensation of the venom is coursing through your veins. That whatever kind of snake it is, it's deadly enough that people are like dropping like flies in the wilderness because of these serpents. Now we can remember earlier in Numbers, times where God brings judgment like this and the people of Israel say, Moses, you did this. Aaron, you're killing us. But look at what they do this time. We have sinned. And look how specific they are. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Guys, this is what the Bible calls repentance. That big fancy spiritual word in the Hebrew, the word they use, literally means turn around. A change of direction. Like I was going this way and complaining about God, but now I realize that was me. That was my mistake, not God's. I need to change the way I think about God. In fact, in the New Testament, the word that it picks up means a change of mind. That I've been thinking I can save myself. I can be thinking I'll find my own way to God. I've been thinking God doesn't exist. I've been thinking you can't believe all this stuff. I have to repent. I have to change direction, change my mind, believe who God is, and admit, as hard as it is, I sinned. I need God to save me. Because there's nothing else that's going to help them with the poison that is coursing through their veins as they lay on the ground writhing and dying. So this is hard to hear. It's hard to say sometimes. But I'm going to say it because I love you guys and I love the people around us. Our sin, all of those things that fall short of God's perfect standard for us, And I know we can all think of like the seven deadlies, like it's those two. But like, man, complaining, gossip, pride, all of these things. Our sin is every bit as deadly as the venom of these serpents. We, by our very nature, are in the same position as Israel. We are dying Apart from one thing, 
unless God has a way to heal and save, we're dead. So look what happens in the next verse. Therefore the people came to Moses, said, We have sinned. So then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Guys, I don't know about you, but for me, this just went from weird to weirder. Like, it's already like, where did all these snakes come from? And people around me are dying. And then God says, I have a solution for you. And it's not the antivenom. It's not a doctor. It's not some way to pull the poison out of your veins. It's make a statue of a snake, lift it up on a wooden stick, and then look at it. Okay, so let's pretend for a second that you were bitten by a venomous snake. Okay. You drive to the ER. You say, I was bitten by a venomous snake. And the doctor says, you have about two minutes to live, but hold on a second, I've got this really cool picture of a snake I brought with me today. You say, I do not care. <laughs> I don't know who you stole this costume from, but you are not a doctor. Please get a doctor. Right, so what's crazy about this is there is nothing here about like the normal medical science that heals things, right? All he says is, look. Put a serpent on a wooden stick. Look at it. So it helps to know, and I want you to keep this in mind, that the word for look here carries the idea that you look with belief and understanding. That ultimately what they're saying is, if you say so, God, that to look at the snake, I'm believing God that this is actually the way to be healed. All right, so keep that in your mind. Because another thing I want to show you is that this phrase, the bronze serpent, I know we're diving into the Hebrew today because you're going to need this one by the time you get later in the Bible. The word for serpent is nahash. Nahash. The word for bronze, nahosh et. Nahash, nahosh et. So there's kind of like a play on words happening here, which maybe is why Moses picks this kind of metal because it's a really kind of serpenty serpent. It's a bronze serpent. Nahash, nahosh, Okay. You fast forward all the way to the book of 2 Kings. Now, in 2 Kings, we meet Hezekiah, who is one of the good kings. And if you've read through the kings, that is incredibly rare. So when you find a good king, you slow down, you say, what made him so good? So what made Hezekiah good was he got rid of all the idols. Like anything that people worshiping that not, that's not God, let's get rid of it. And here's how it describes it. Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father David had done, he removed the high places, he broke the sacred pillars, he cut down the wooden image, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. The high places, sure. Like, that stuff's from Canaanite gods and Egyptian gods. Like, we don't need that stuff. But the bronze serpent, that's from God. God made that. That's a good thing, right? But look what happened to it. For until those days... The children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. So remember that word for bronze? Nehoshetan. Nehoshet. They turned it into a name and they're worshiping the bronzy one. So they have taken what was meant to be a symbol of believing God for healing and they've turned it into their God. 
Essentially, they're banking on religious ritual and religious paraphernalia for healing. So what's crazy about this is this is right around 600 uh, BC that Hezekiah puts down this cult. He says, no, we're not worshiping snake on a stick. That was to point us to God, you guys. Stop. He literally breaks it, throws it away. I don't care if Moses made it. I don't care if God gave it to it. If you worship that thing instead of him, it's a hindrance. We're getting rid of it. So it disappears from Israel's history, but you can dig up in that area from that period of time. There are bronze serpents all over the place. So there are multiple different cults that are probably using this thing. But about 300 years later, you get this guy named Asclepius. So if you recognize that symbol on the right, that is a symbol for healthcare all over the place today. And it traces back to, they say, the rod of Asclepius because he was a Greek god of medicine and healing. And he had a rod with a serpent on it. So that's his symbol for rods and healing, so doctors use it. Sometimes you will also see two snakes on a stick with wings. That one's actually a mistake. <laughs> that one's actually from Hermes, and it's about finances. Uh, but people get them mixed up, so they just use both. So here's what's funny to me about this. Like when you trace back this history, the rod of Asclepius doesn't show up for 300 years after Hezekiah has put down the snake on a stick cult. Probably what happens is that Jews started this cult believing that snake on a stick brings us healing instead of God. And although it's put out of Israel, it had already taken hold in the land so that by 300 years later in that same part of the world, the Greeks pick it up as their own God of healing with a snake on a stick. Okay, you got the history? Now, having heard all of that, you and I would probably treat this like Bruno from Encanto. If you got kids, I know you've seen that 12 times. We don't talk about Bruno, right? But maybe Bruno's just misunderstood. Like, I would think we should never talk about the bronze serpent again. That was a disaster, and now it led to some Greek cult. Which is why it is crazy. It is crazy to me that when you fast forward a few hundred more years, it's actually Jesus who brings it up in the New Testament. So he's having a meeting with this guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a religious person. He knows his Bible back to front, and he's got all these questions about the stuff that Jesus has been saying. So he comes to Jesus at night and says, I want to know your message. And Jesus is trying to give him the gospel. And he's using words like, well, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, I can't. And if that's a metaphor, I don't know what you're talking about. So he keeps asking questions, and Jesus keeps challenging him until you get to John 3.16 which is like the classic statement of the gospel. But as Neil mentioned, literally one sentence, two verses before that, of all of the passages in the Old Testament that Jesus could use to make sure that you understand John 3.16 and the core of the gospel message, look at what he says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see the connection? At the root of this whole thing is the idea that when I realize I'm perishing, when I realize that in and of myself I'm dead, 
only God can save me and only he can tell me how. That for the people of Israel, they were dying. They repented, right? They turned toward God and believed the one that he lifted up for their healing. Jesus is saying, that's just like me. That's why I'm here. Because you can't obey your way into the kingdom. You can't find any other path. Uh, You imagine this for the people of Israel. Imagine writhing on the ground with venom coursing through your veins. Everything feels like it's on fire and you're the next to die. And saying, look at a statue of a snake. Thank you very much. I will find my own way to be healed. You keep your statue. I'm going to look for uh, some antidote. Right, writhing on the ground in pain and saying, look at a snake on a stick, believe him that that's going to heal me, that makes no sense. And besides, I think we all find our own way to get the venom out of our system. And I think that as long as I don't complain again, I should be fine. Guys, there's a reason that Jesus is pointing to Numbers 21. There's a reason that Jesus is pointing to the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. There's nothing they can do but believe God that they're healed by looking on the one they raised up. To believe in Jesus so you will not perish but have everlasting life. I know that's like not that creative. I just took it right out of the verses. (laughs) But if that's Jesus' main point, if he looks at Numbers 21 and says, this is what I want you to get, that's good enough for me. Because if you think about it, that means something for them right in that passage. Don't try to figure this out on your own. Believe God the way he says it. But also, imagine if he had given them that day. Oh, and by the way, just as a side note, someday the Messiah will come and he'll be killed on a cross. They would say, what's a cross? And yet even through the wooden stick on which the snake is lifted up, Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up the same way. That again, it is not just through thinking Jesus is a good teacher or a nice guy. It is through believing that his death was to save us from our death. That all the sin that made us die, he took on that cross when he was lifted up. That he died and rose again, lifted up from the grave that we might have eternal life. Guys, that is the gospel in a nutshell. That is like everything that all of this has been pointing to. And would you believe it that when Jesus wants to make sure you understand it, he says, go check out numbers of all places. I love this. You know, as Neil said, that's exactly what we were celebrating with the baptisms yesterday. And I love that a couple of the stories I heard, thinking of one guy in particular and, and one gal, you know, that essentially part of their story, if I use my own words, was that they realized they were kind of banking on the religious ritual and the religious paraphernalia. But now they had realized, that doesn't save me. I have a relationship with Jesus now. I trust him myself. And I want to be baptized to declare that to my friends and to the world. Guys, those are some of the best things that we do here. And when you take that truth back to Numbers 21, look at what the people do with it. Now the children of Israel moved on they moved forward that's not the end right they didn't park there and say well this is like snake town now and we're just going to live here because as long as we stay here we should be okay and the idea is that now that they've been healed they move forward god has something in store for them 
And so the next few verses, it kind of starts to do this thing where it lists all these different place names. And so I'm just going to read that to you because I want you to hear them. But while we do that, I'm going to show you some pictures of what those places look like in the modern world. Because one of the great challenges when you're looking at biblical geography, a lot of these place names we're not familiar with, and a lot of them carry the same name. Like there are, we talked about Horma, there are actually multiple Hormas. So when you dig up a Horma, like how do you know, is it this one, is it that one? Fun fact, did you know there are actually six Cincinnati's in the United States? I had no idea. I googled it on a whim. I just wondered if that still happens. There are six Cincinnati's. There is a Cincinnati, California, not to be confused with California here in Cincinnati, right? (laughs) There's one in Missouri. There's one in Iowa. You're going to love this. Indiana has two, two Cincinnati's in Indiana. So you can imagine the difficulty like thousands of years from now when you dig something up that says he was from Cincinnati. Well, you and I know this is Cincinnati, but they might have thought it was the, one of the other ones, right? So what I'm going to do is, it will feel like, what's he talking about? Don't worry too much about the names. Just listen to it and look at these pictures to get a sense of what this is like modern day, because it's very similar to how it was back then. So it says, the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ej-Abarim. And this is what Ej-Abarim looks like today. Wow. That is a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there, right? It's still wilderness and desert and sand. And from there it says, it's in the wilderness which is east of Moab toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. Wow, that's extremely... This literally is, this really is, the the area outside Zered, modern day, looks an awful lot like E.J. Avarim, doesn't it? (laughs) They're still in the wilderness, and from there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness. Check out this picture of Arnon. Like, it's all the same, but they're moving forward. You don't see the complaining now. That extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. So you start to pick up this this word Moab multiple times that each thing it's describing is trying to tell you it's not Cincinnati, California. It's this one, next to this one, next to this one, because we're coming up to the border of Moab and new challenges. And that's why it says in the book of the Wars of the Lord, one of those books the Bible mentions that we have no copies of, Wahab and Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, the slopes of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to Beir, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. I love that. Like they've been worried about food and water and he's saying, you have food and I will give you water. After moving through all that desert, even a small hole of water like this is so refreshing and a reminder, God is with you in the wilderness. He will provide. And so my encouragement for you and for me, now, move forward. Kind of like the way Hebrews told us. Like salvation, like all that stuff, that's like ground floor. That's the basic stuff. And once you've got that, once you can confidently say, Jesus, I trust you as my forgiver, my king, my leader. Then we don't just hang out there feeling bad about all the stuff he had to forgive. And we don't just hang out there thinking like, hey, I'm healed, like, whatever. Let me know when he gets back. Right? He wants us to move forward. He has things in store for us. And so maybe for you today, there's a place in your life where you need repentance. Something that you know is out of line with God's standard and you want to turn from that and back to him. 
to show you victory where you've had failure before. And maybe that's for the first time. Because honestly, the first repentance, change your mind about Jesus. From he's just a guy, he's just a teacher, I don't know if this is real, to Jesus, you're my forgiver. You know, and if you've made that decision, then maybe it's time for you to move forward and be baptized. You know, Neil mentioned this, that we just celebrated baptisms here yesterday. And if you're a Christ follower and you have not been baptized before, then baptism is one of the ways that we obey Christ. One of the ways that we recognize, not that we're baptized to be saved, but because he saved us. In fact, I love the way Chad put this yesterday. Let me see if I get this right because he's got such a knack for this. We don't obey to be accepted. We obey because we're accepted. Because I'm forgiven. Because I'm redeemed. Then I want to live out what Jesus has given me. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, you're in luck. This just worked out. But like literally today at 11 o'clock, right up those stairs. When you come in the front door, there's that big staircase. You go up those stairs and down to the left. There's a baptism seminar at 11 o'clock today if you'd like to find out more information about being baptized. If you're not comfortable in there, we'd also love to just have a one-on-one conversation with you. If you stop by the hearth room on your way out, it's the third door on the left. We'd love to just chat and hear your story. And the next baptism is June 18th. So whether you're getting baptized or you want to come celebrate it with us, mark that on the calendar. Maybe for you, moving forward is finding a way to serve. I love that Nicodemus, after his conversation with Jesus... Like, we don't hear about him for like a whole lot of chapters, probably about three years. But then he gets to the point that he believes in Jesus and he decides to serve him. And Nicodemus is actually one of the two people who receive the body of Christ off of the cross and prepare it for burial. And I think he is probably why so many of the priests and Pharisees in the book of Acts become believers. Because they're saying, what's all this stuff about born again? And Nicodemus is like, actually, I can explain that. You guys remember numbers? (laughs) Because Jesus explained it to him. You know, that just like him, maybe there's somebody in your life that you can serve by showing them who God is. And honestly, there are so many ways to serve just here at Horizon. Like, because I was thinking about this this morning, I was just like acutely aware of our parking team and the crew making the coffee. And, and you probably saw the balloons and stuff, that it's, it's move up Sunday for our kids. So we're going to move forward. They're going to move up. They're fourth graders becoming fifth graders they get to go upstairs for the first time but think of all of the people who are serving our teens our kids our students back there we even had uh, a couple weeks ago i don't know if this is the official title but it was described to me as the flower brigade come to our property and plant flowers to make this place look beautiful to make it look welcoming not just for us but for the friends and neighbors that we invite so can i just say if you're part of any of those teams in any way thank you for serving the Lord that way. It's an amazing thing that we get to do when we come here together. And so Israel is moving forward, and I wanted to just show you the last couple verses that we're looking at today. It says in verse 17, then Israel sang this song. I I love that, that as they're moving forward, they're singing. Spring up, O well, all of you sing it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matana, from Matana to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. And I guarantee you I pronounced all of those exactly like Moses would have. (laughs) 90% guarantee. 
But here's what I love about that. They're singing as they move forward. We're going to give you a minute just to talk to God yourself. Wherever you want to turn your eyes on Jesus, would you tell him that right now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for just making it abundantly clear that you want us to respond to that message by believing in you. And so right here in this moment, would you hear our hearts as we turn our eyes upon you, Jesus? Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Hey, wherever your week takes you, keep turning your eyes upon Jesus, and we'll see you back next week.